Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And today we've got a special for you, which is uh, some of you very kindly emailed and said, oh, your Edinburgh shows, are they being streamed like the ones at King's Place or are you going to record them and put them out as podcasts? Well, the last one I did, the 14th, I recorded it. So this is what we're going to do in our time together. The uh, last show I did 14. Anyway, it's all explained at the beginning. I don't need to tell you that. Just a couple of notices before then. One is that, uh, yeah, you've all, we've all got to roll up at King's Place September the 19th for the Liz Truss special the start of the Liz Truss era special. She'll have been Prime Minister for two weeks then, and uh, God knows where we'll be. All we know is that, you know, she's consulting the top minds in British politics in Chevening. Ian Duncan Smith, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Lord Frosty Frost, he's back, he's back. Uh, They're all uh, giving her the um, huge benefit of their great insights into the future. So yeah, well, by then we'll have a clearer sense of the Liz Truss era, and we need to gather to make sense of it. Uh, Tickets at the King's Place website, it is being live streamed as well. So there are streaming tickets and the link will be on the blurb to this podcast. And those of you who kindly uh, subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics. Of course, a new month looms. And in that new month, um, I'll be exploring the final one in this series of prime ministers and their chosen special advisors, their chosen confidants. Many have asked me to do this one, the relationship between Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell. So that will be coming up at the start of September. Possibly, I've had, uh, I thought you'd all be on the beach in August. I mean, I've been working away, but I thought you'd all be on the beach. But I've had a range of brilliant questions. Now we're doing this special here where you're going to hear the last uh, Edinburgh show, but I might, I can't promise because just driving back from Edinburgh now, there might be a special this week with your questions. So do subscribe to make sure you automatically get it on whatever means you hear the podcast for that special. that has fantastic questions. If I don't have time to do it, hopefully next week there will be a bit more time to take in some of your uh, brilliant questions. But for now, Here is the uh, final uh, show at this year's Edinburgh Festival. Hello, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much for coming along to this, the 14th episode of this run of Rock and Roll Politics at the Edinburgh Festival. And this is the grand finale. This is where we crack everything. You might arrive today feeling baffled about the insane state of British politics. You will leave with everything making sense because (laughs) this is the time when we gather together and shine light over what we've learnt over the two weeks. And I know some of you have very kindly come several times because each show has been different. We've been exploring all kinds of different themes And now we're going to make sense of it all in our time together. Hi, welcome. You've only just missed the beginning. It was quite good, but it gets better. Um, uh, So thank you. Now, today, if it's okay with you, what we normally do, uh, or have quite often done in um, these shows, is reflect on when we all gathered here last time in August 2019 and the difference, the different world we are in 
now. Did any of you kindly come in August 2019 to these shows? Oh, only a few today. Well, that's okay. I mean, it's, but anyway, but those of you who did will remember, well, you all will remember what a different world it was. August 2019, Johnson had just become Prime Minister. I know he is still Prime Minister, but he isn't really. He's uh, enjoying, I'm, I'm told he's on his third holiday at the moment. Nothing much going on to worry a Prime Minister in Britain. But he's about to go. And all the key figures in August 2019 have gone, except for one. Nicola Sturgeon is still very much here as First Minister, still calling for that referendum, as she was in 2019. Everyone else gone. Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the opposition. The MPs who thought they had agency in that hung parliament to stop Johnson's pursuit with Lord Frosty Frost of a hard Brexit were big players in the August of 2019. For those of you who came then, you will remember... Do you remember David Gork? He's still around. He writes for the New Statesman now, which is a real symbol of decline. Um, A joke. I used to do that as well, right, for the New Statesman. Um, But anyway, yeah, in the August of 2019, there he was, a backbench MP, photographed on his phone in a swimming pool in Tuscany, on his phone to the former Chancellor Philip Hammond, who by August 2019 had become a kind of revolutionary figure trying to stop Boris Johnson's hard Brexit. Uh, I call Hammond our Che Guevara, Britain's Che Guevara figure, in his revolutionary ardour to stop Brexit. And they all had power. Ken Clark came back from his holiday in August 2019 uh, and he picked up a front uh, copy of the Times at Heathrow Airport and the headline was, Ken Clark about to be made Prime Minister. He said, I was just bird watching and apparently I'm Prime Minister. You see, because they were all plotting and planning and they had agency. And uh, I had a very vivid reminder because here we have time for questions and to uh, to sort of preempt our time together when we have questions. Uh, In 2019, I used to do John Burko, who was Speaker of the Westminster House of Commons, and I used to do this, to pause from other things and go, order, order, take your pills, man, do your yoga, and behave yourself, and camera, just keep on me. And I was doing this, and then Burko was sitting just over there in about the fourth row. Bit of a shock for me. But after we made up, uh, we went out for lunch and explored all the permutations that could happen this autumn. Uh, That autumn, August 2019, none of them happened. It all unfolded in a different way. And in some of the shows, we looked at how we got from there to hear. We haven't got time for that today. We've got so much to cram in, in our time together. And this is what we're going to do. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to make a prediction. Actually, today, as it's the last one, I think we need to have two predictions to make sense of it all. Then I will reflect a bit on partly what we've learned together over these last two weeks. It's been partly therapy and partly... God knows what, frankly. Um, and then I will do... Uh, can't do Burko anymore. He's another one who's disappeared since August 2019. So I will do Order, Order, which is the closest I can get to Lindsay Hoyle, um, the new Westminster speaker. Uh, and then we can have a wider discussion 
in which we will draw a line over this year's uh, rock and roll politics and make sense of it all. So that's what we're going to do, if it's okay with all of you. A lot to cram in in our time together. So I'm going to ask you to make two predictions which will reflect the theme to uh, follow. Before I do, for those of you who have... have uh, um, Many of you been to this run of shows this time before? Oh, quite a few. Thank you so much for uh, coming back. Um, now, as you will know, those who have been before... These predictions can get quite sort of dramatic and heated. And, and it is true that Sky, ITN and BBC are waiting outside uh, to report your predictions. So um, you will be front page news. But other than that, it's just a bit of fun. They can go in curious ways. Were any of you here the Friday before last? Oh, yeah. Would well, you remember we did Britain and Europe that day? Do you remember? And so for the prediction, just to set it up for you, what we're doing shortly, uh, I asked then whether the audience predicted that the UK would be back in the European Union within 20 years. And we had the prediction, and I think, if, you, if I remember rightly, it was 52-48, wasn't it? <laughs> just got a bit tense. 52-48, uh, uh, I think predicting that the UK wouldn't be. But then you see these predictions are nuanced and complicated. So somebody put their hand up and said, I don't think there will be a UK in 20 years' time because Scotland will have become independent. So we need another vote on whether Scotland will be in the EU within 20 years. So that really needed another two votes, uh, whether Scotland would be independent and whether Scotland would rejoin the EU. And then someone else put their hand up and said, what about whether the UK will be back in the single market, a bit like Norway? I think we need a vote on that. Well, Dolly Parton's on here at 12.15. And so we had to cancel Dolly Parton, have all these votes. um, And only in the Edinburgh Festival can you say, Dolly Parton is cancelled because we're voting whether we're going to be Norway in 20 years' time. So Dolly Parton's cancelled and so on. And so it can go in all sorts of weird ways. The first Tuesday here, I don't know if any of you were here, uh, I asked the audience to predict whether Keir Starmer would be the Prime Minister after next. Now, this was before all the opinion polls showing a very big UK Labour lead. But I did think a majority of the audience would predict he would be in a hung parliament, which is sort of what I think could well happen. So I asked the audience to predict. Is that Keir Starmer? (laughs) Uh, uh, I asked the audience to make a prediction. And to my surprise, they um, voted, predicted that he wouldn't be. Now, this presented me with an on-the-spot problem because I had prepared the rest of the hour to be a Keir Starmer special. Um, And I thought, well, Christ, if they don't don't think he's going to be Prime Minister, to focus in, delve deep on Keir Starmer and the UK Labour Party might be a bit meaningless to this particular audience who doesn't think he's going to win anything. And so I offered the audience a choice, you know, kind of, but I tried to manipulate the outcome by saying, okay, well, there's some scepticism here about Keir Starmer. We can look and delve deep on Starmer and the UK Labour Party, or we could spend time reflecting on economic policymaking in the 1970s. <laughs> By a big majority, the audience voted for economic policymaking <laughs> in the 1970s, which we did and incidentally has become increasingly pertinent because hanging over 
all of this as we discussed yesterday, and I think a few of you are here from yesterday. Um, as we discussed yesterday, this price cap, more than £3,500 in October, is going to dwarf all other themes. And um, I'm going to reflect not so much on that because we did that yesterday, but on related issues in a moment. But now to your predictions. Now, obviously, there have been, although every show has been different, there have been running themes, one UK-wide and one relating to Scotland, but, of course, affecting the whole of the UK. Um, We have had, throughout the run, the Tory leadership contest, and it's clearly going to emerge with Liz Truss as the winner. And we did a Liz Truss special here the other day, Um, and medical attention was required for three-quarters of the audience at the end of it. I'm going to ask you something about her. Let's assume she uh, wins. Oh, by the way, how many of you from Scotland today, please? Okay, and how many from the rest of the UK? Oh, more from Scotland today uh, than the rest of the UK, about two to one, I think. Um, Okay, and anyone from outside the UK today, please? Ah, right, okay, let's go. Where are you from, please? Ireland. Okay. Oh, well, thank you. Well done. Do you live here or in Ireland? You live in Scotland. Okay. Are you, have you got a European passport, even with your Irish citizenship? I do, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us how we get one of these things? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, well, 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 thank you very much for coming along. And, and where are you from, please? I think there's somebody else from outside the UK here today. Oh, lots. Yeah, over here first. I'm from California. California. Right. Uh, uh, do you live here, here or California? Yeah. Oh, you live here. We have had some Americans here who've flown in specially. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, they came for about three or four days in a row. Um, and they virtually cancelled their flights to try and carry on <laughs> the whole run. Anyway, but you live here. You live here. Right, thank you. Well, America and British politics, or certainly American and English politics, there are lots of eerie parallels. Um, but anyway, that will be for another day. And yeah, I think there was somebody else from outside the UK. Oh, where are you from, please? France. France. And do you live here? In England. In England. Right, what do you think? Uh, you know, one of the many discreet things that Liz Truss has said <laughs> um, during her leadership contest is when she was asked about whether you could trust Macron, she said, look at the audience, her audience with a wink, the jury's out. What what do you think about that? Well, I mean, it's a bit weird to be French living in England. It is weird being a French person living in England. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. Um, you know, if you want security and things in the coming two years with Liz Truss, let us know. I mean, it's going to be so weird. Um, but this neatly gets us to our first prediction. Now, Liz Truss will be Prime Minister, you know, barring unforeseen circumstances, on September the 5th, days away. Most new Prime Ministers get a honeymoon, and some manage to keep that honeymoon going incoming Prime Ministers, to the point where they then win a general election. To give you one example of this, when Thatcher fell in November 1990, John Major took over, 
and won uh, an election in 1992 and incidentally secured the biggest vote for the Conservative Party across the UK of those four Conservative wins. More votes than Thatcher got in her landslides. Um, there are other examples where an incoming Prime Minister comes in and thinks they're going to win, like Theresa May, who held an early election and then lost her party's majority, but she still got more seats. So this is a very complicated but simple prediction. How, you know, you'll see what I mean. How many of you today, in this final episode of this year's Edinburgh Festival, predict that Liz Truss will win the next UK-wide general election? Okay, I'm recording this for the podcast as well, and I can report sensationally um, very few are making that (laughs) prediction. How many of you predict she will lose? Right, I can report a landslide prediction that Liz Truss is going to lose the next general election. Now, there is a twist here. Uh, The Edinburgh audiences are the most unreliable barometer... (laughs) in British politics. Or to put it more crudely, every prediction they make proves to be wholly wrong. So this is the best news uh, that Liz Truss has received. But it's also, it is very interesting. You see, remember I said uh, the Tuesday before last, I asked the audience to predict whether Keir Starmer uh, would win the would be the Prime Minister after next, and a majority predicted he wouldn't be. Now, by implication, by a landslide here today you are predicting he will be. Because if she loses, he wins. I mean, you know, it's not going to be Ed Davey um, or anyone else, Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, it's either her or him. So you've just predicted by a landslide, you suddenly look all doubtful. But that is the logic of your prediction, um, which is interesting, because that's very different from the audience the other day. Or maybe it's just the way you phrased the question. You know, then I asked about him, and now I've asked about her. So anyway, a minority of you predicted that she would win. Would one of you just explain why? And I will repeat it, because we're recording this for the uh, podcast. Well, don't be so ashamed. I mean, it's a perfectly <laughs> respectable... Yeah, over there. Because she'll get a big bounce, and the Tory party will rally around her, and uh, she'll play to the sort of, can I say, English nationalists. Yeah, she'll get, just for those who couldn't hear in the hall or uh, on the podcast, she'll get a big bounce, she'll play to what that sort of populist English nationalism that worked so well for Boris Johnson in December 2019, and you think she's going to win whenever that election is held. Do you... She's a pure star not to face her, and I think, you know, he's in the lead now, but it's taken an awful long time, despite the debacle in the Tory party, to get there, and I think uh, they can knock him off the perch. Oh, right. So although he's in a lead, and by the way, he's in a very big lead, as we gather at the end of August, um, both in terms of the Labour's lead and his personal ratings against either Sunak or Truss, but you think that could be easily addressed. Interesting. Any, anyone else who predicts a Truss uh, victory at the next general election up there? And Right, you don't think Labour are offering... What about on the energy bills, uh, Keir Starmer, a price freeze? Uh, Liz Truss, so far, nothing, actually. I mean, that might change quickly. It will have to change quickly. 
But you don't think that's a... Yeah. English nationalism ramped up. Media, the media for sure. We we did a session on the media, and we had on uh, one day here Paul Dacre in the audience. Um, no, no, no. It wasn't Paul Dacre. It was someone playing Paul Dacre in. <laughs> In the play that's on um, the, the Bloody Women, you know, the play about uh, Theresa May and Gina Miller. And I've been to see it, it's very good, and he's very good as Dacre. Uh, but he was up here playing Paul Dacre. So again, I think, well, 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 you know, where am I? What am I doing? Um, so yeah, yeah, the media, will, yeah, and you're absolutely right about that. They will, the Daily Mail will deify. Liz Truss, and that will have an impact on the BBC, who are scared of the Daily Mail, and so on. As the you know, the Mail are brilliant at it. I've, I've been looking for a book I'm doing on the rise of Margaret Thatcher, and when she became elected in February 1975, um, the next day, because people were saying, "Well, you know, she's a bit odd, and you know, she's slightly weird. Uh, she needs to be humanised." So the next day, the Mail christened her Maggie. She had never been called Maggie anywhere. Thatcher wondered who they were talking about when they were referring to Maggie this, Maggie that. But from then on, you found a lot of voters saying, yeah, yeah, I'm for Maggie Thatcher. You know, she's... Look at what they're doing with Boris Johnson. You know, this odd period of leadership. Um, You know, they're pumping out headlines, Boris to secure this, Boris this, Boris that. He's on holiday the whole time. And he's been portrayed as a combination of Cicero, Churchill and Thatcher. Um, So you're absolutely right. By the way, with Johnson, it's a very interesting reflection on him that most people, when they uh, leave office, toppled, as he has been, are traumatised forever. They never recover. Uh, politics is brutal. And when we were talking about Thatcher and Major, when Thatcher was removed, she kind of visibly shrunk within days. She started stooping with the burden of coping uh, with the acts of regicide that she had suffered. Um, And that's the same with many who leave office or who are rejected in any way at all. In a very different context, Neil Kinnock, who lost the 92 election, to John Major, you know, that fourth election win. Um, he still hasn't got over it. He once said to me, I think, I think in the end, voters didn't like me. That's my Neil Kinnock impersonation. <laughs> so bad it needs a bit of guidance. Um, but, you know, it's terrible. Johnson, he's never looked happier in all his life. I don't know if you've seen the photos of him today climbing onto some boat where he's been swimming. This is what he thought leadership was all about. Power. Glory without responsibility. And I think he's loving these last few days in power. Uh, Holidays, uh, kind of parties at Chequers, parties with donors, preparing his honours list where he doles out peerages to Paul Dacre and others. This is his dream idea of leadership. And of course then he has no intention of declining and getting depressed and miserable. He's going to go to the Tory party conference and be treated like a rock star and incidentally make life very difficult for Liz Truss. Anyway, let's now go to our second prediction because this is one of the other themes that we've been living through over the last two weeks and some of you live through permanently. Will Scotland 
be independent by 2025. How many of you... Now, I'll better contextualise this again. We haven't got time for sort of other votes and layers of votes. Dolly Parton's waiting, I can see, out there. Um, But why we're doing that, as all of you know, Nicola Sturgeon has said she wants a referendum next year, but as you know, the Westminster government won't give her the one that formally authorises independence. So she's also said as a backstop, she will treat the 2024 UK general election as a referendum in Scotland. And if um, parties um, that stand for independence win most votes in Scotland, she will see that as uh, a referendum. And one way or another will get independence by around, let's say, 2025. How many of you predict, not what you want to happen, we're not here to have a row about it, you know, it's Saturday, we're all on holiday, sort of. How many of you predict that will happen, that sequence that she has outlined will happen and Scotland will be independent by around 2025? Now, obviously, you in Scotland, how many of you predict that will be the case? Well, I can sensationally report only two and they both look very doubtful. (laughs) Um, and how many of you predict Scotland won't be independent by around 20? A landslide again, which means Scotland will be independent <laughs> by 2025. Well, I, I'm, I am surprised, to be honest. Um, uh, but, you know, that, why out of it? Well, look, the two of you who tentatively put your hand up, why do you think it will be independent by around 2025? It might take a bit longer, but she's going to pull it off. Basically, why do you think she will? Well, I'm English, and I was just thinking, awful. <laughs> well, England's awful, so get out. Yeah. <laughs> well, certainly England is the gift that keeps on giving, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, from Boris Johnson to Liz Truss, it's quite a quite a gift. And 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 you put your hand up as well. I mean, it's essentially exactly the same reason. Most of the Scots are absolutely disgusted with English politics. Yeah, most of the Scots disgusted with English politics. Yeah, yeah. It is one of the um, uh, many sort of conundrums. I was speaking, uh, he said this publicly as well. I said, no, you know, uh, the view of the Scottish Labour leader, Anasawa, is the key to any recovery of Scottish Labour in uh, Scotland, is a sense that Labour might win a UK election, because then this gift that keeps on giving has been stopped. Um, but to get that, you have to start. Labour have to start winning seats in Scotland. So it's a terrible one of the many, many conundrums. Now, a whole landslide predicted this wouldn't happen. This project of Nicola Sturgeon, and by the way, she looks quite tired. She can still work a room brilliantly. I've seen her, as many of you might have done at these uh, several fringe meetings. Um, perhaps she should have been focusing on the rubbish in Edinburgh, but there we go. She's been at a lot of fringe meetings, and she works a room fantastically. Well, but um, you don't think she's going to achieve it. I think by 2025, she'll be gone. I think she wants to go to the UN, and that would be long enough. So why don't you, one of you, why don't you think that's going to happen? Any, anyone? Yes, over there. Uh, from my perspective, economic reality. Economic reality, too, too risky. Too risky in terms of the economics. Tough period coming up, yeah. And, um, I also think, at some point, my reading, English, so I don't have a local view, um, is that Labour will have a very, 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 very,
Oh, she'll be seen to have failed to deliver for Scotland, and that will create a reaction against the whole project. camp project. Yeah, that's so. Well, there we are. There we are. You've had two uh, different uh, views here, uh, but I do report a landslide predicting it's not going to happen by around 2025. After which, I think she will not want to hang around much longer. I mean, she's been there for a long time, and it's difficult and stressful. Um, so, well, thank you very much for setting up my reflections. If it's okay with you, I'm going to reflect on an irony I've been very conscious of in our times together over the last uh, fortnight, which is this. The, the Tory leadership campaign, the UK Tory leadership campaign, has been marked by one theme, a battle to appear the most uh, in awe of Margaret Thatcher. And it has been at times weird, absurd and wacky. Uh, really. You know, so Liz Truss, at the beginning of the campaign, she's doing less of it now as she becomes more confident of victory, kind of dressed up as her. I thought we'd had enough of dressing up with Boris Johnson, a figure only at ease publicly when he was dressed up. You know, each week he said to his people, I, I, I want to be a police officer this week. <laughs> Get me a police officer uniform. And there he would be in Liverpool at dawn, dressed up as a police officer before being given a penalty charge notice for breaking his own rules, but they were, I, I, I want to be a police officer. And then he would say, I, 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 I'll be a nursing assistant today. And so they'd get his nursing gear on to visit a hospital. And then he'd say, I, I want to be a builder. I want to be a builder. And he'd get the builder's uniform to uh, uh, go to a building site somewhere. And then once sometime, I'd like to be a farmer today. He was only at ease when dressing up. And even during this mad interim period, there he is being dressed up as an RAF bomber pilot. Can you imagine any previous prime minister? Can you imagine Gordon Brown going around and saying, I want to be a farmer today. Get me me a farmer's uniform. I mean, it's incomprehensible. Um, Or Theresa May, I'd rather like to be a nursing assistant today. I want to dress up as a nurse. And even Tony Blair, who was a great actor, looked right. I think today I'll be a builder. If you can get me kind of, you know, kind of building. I mean, it's, none of them would do it, but he was only at ease as a public figure. He, he was shy and awkward, actually, is, but can perform when dressed up. He reminds me of the actor Peter Sellers, who was only at ease when in character. And that was Johnson. But now here is another one. Liz Trust. In a, filmed in a tank looking like Thatcher, apparently wore the same clothes as Thatcher in the first leadership contest uh, televised debate. Um, I don't know whether they were literally Thatcher's clothes. <laughs> I mean, she died years ago. Prime Minister last in 1990. But there you are, claiming to be... By the way, she isn't. Her economic policies are much closer to Reagan's in the United States in the 80s when he borrowed to fund tax cuts. She was against all of that. She used to go around and she believed it. The idea that she was this titanic intellectual theorist is complete nonsense. It was all based on her father's shop in Grantham, her views. My father in his shop in Grantham... This is my Margaret Thatcher impersonation. (laughs) My father in his shop in Grantham never, ever spent more than he earned. And a country can't spend more than it earns. That's what her whole thing was. You know, monetarism was reduced to that. And all these monetarist economic people go, oh, right, so from now on we just quote the shop in Grantham, you know. Anyway, that's closer to Sunak. But because 
Truss has convinced the party membership. She is the devotee of Thatcher and the great insurgent changemaker, even though she's in the cabinet and has been the longest-serving cabinet member. He has had to work even harder to show that he is a Thatcherite, which he is. I mean, it's all mad. So he went up to visit Grantham with his uh, wife and to be photographed below the statue of Thatcher, his wife taking photos on the most expensive camera in the world. Um, And, you know, this mad battle to claim the mantle of this figure who was a product of the 70s and 80s in terms of her thinking. Nothing to do with the challenges they face now. But here is the twist which has been worked out in our time together over the last two weeks. It seems to me the one absolute legacy of Thatcher that had never really been challenged is being challenged big time in front of our eyes just as these two candidates in their fantasy world are once again elevating her to a godlike status. And it's this. In the 80s, the Thatcherite privatisations were seen in the end by her and by many others, including New Labour in the 1997 period, as the great untouchable triumph. The privatisation of water and all the other things that went on was seen as the great enduring thing that could be not touched. And yet you think about what we have been living through in our time together in Edinburgh over the last two weeks. It began, this wasn't one of Thatcher's, of course, it was John Major, with the whole railway dispute. Now, what's really interesting about that is this. If you listen very carefully to Mick Lynch, old Lynchy, you know, who's now everyone's kind of favourite media performer, which threw Keir Starmer a bit because Keir Starmer thought he'd be unpopular. But even Alistair Campbell is tweeting, God, Mick Lynch is fantastic. And starts, oh my God, am I on the wrong side of this argument? But Lynch, um, if you listen to him, he's very good. Well, you know, Tory MPs say, with respect, uh, Mr. Lynch, you're talking nonsense. Network Rail have offered this brilliant deal. So that's, you're talking lies. You're, that's a lie. That's a lie. Tory MPs, oh God, I don't know how to deal with this. But more fundamentally, what he has said is this, and it's very interesting. If you listen to him carefully, he said, yeah, we, we're almost there with Network Rail. We could get an offer with Network Rail. The trade operating companies, we could, get, we could sort it out with them, but they're not in charge. It's, it, Grant Shapps is telling them what to do, and Grant Shapps is telling Network Rail what to do. And in the end, you know, and you go around in these circles. And the real reason these strikes are carrying on and kind of jeopardising Edinburgh Festival and all the other things that have gone on is because in that market created by John Major to prove to the Thatcherites in his party that he was with them. That's why he did it. He, he could see the problems. No one's in charge. Lynchy goes to the negotiating table. Is he negotiating with Network Rail, the train rail operating companies, or uh, Network Rail? Now, I know the situation in Scotland is different with Scott Rail, but... Uh, Uh, No one's in charge. And what has happened gradually, actually, is even this government uh, has taken over some of the train companies uh, because they can't function in this mad system. So suddenly you've got people even on the right saying this market doesn't work. And yet it was a market based on the gold dust of Thatcherism. Next, water. As I mentioned the other day here, very interesting. 
all this sewage stuff. Now, again, Scotland different. You know, you, you know the phrase that Remainers used in the Brexit referendum. Uh, you've got the best of both worlds. Now, that, you know, arguably, sorry, I don't want to get into this whole independence thing. There is a bit of best of both worlds. Now, I know in Scotland, water is publicly owned, and incidentally, investment in water is much higher than in England. I read a piece by Camilla Cavendish uh, in the Financial Times a week ago. Now, she is a Tory, Tory, Tory. She ran David Cameron's policy unit in number 10. Not a particularly demanding job, um, uh, because there weren't that many policies. No, no. Uh, well, there weren't. Well, there were, but they were all over the place. But she said water privatisation, it is now clear, has been a disaster. So, again, this great godlike policy that has persisted through the decades, being challenged by Tory, Tory, Camilla Cavendish. I think she's in the House of Lords, a Tory in the House of Lords. And then um, we come to the big one, where this energy market clearly isn't working. You know, yesterday, 3,500 and uh, doubts about energy supply. Uh, as we argued or discussed here in our time together when we had a light-hearted look at the social and economic collapse of the UK, um, this is huge because it's much bigger than the crisis in the 70s, which was triggered by the quadrupling of oil prices in 1973. This one, A, the price rises are much higher, and there are supply issues too. There weren't in the 70s. You could still get the stuff that was coal if you paid the miners and all the rest of it. That triggered its own problems. But there's a combination here. It's the darkest period. And wherever you go, I read a column in the Daily Telegraph business section this morning where somebody argued this market is a catastrophe. The, the, the off guy, what is it for off gas, off gem, whatever it is, off gem. Uh, this is a Telegraph columnist. Uh, just sounds like a representative for the energy companies, not for the consumers. And anyway, the market doesn't work because companies just bet on the price of gas. And if the price of gas um, explodes, the government has to step in because some of these companies can't go bust or else there will be no supply. And so they do, sure enough now, have to step in. I think this presents dilemmas to all of the players in British politics in the coming months. Let's begin briefly with uh, Keir Starmer. Now, Starmer has uh, put forward a policy which is both bold and safe in terms of the immediate with the uh, price freeze, which would have been focus grouped to hell because there is a tyranny of focus groups in Keir Starmer's office. If Keir Starmer says, oh, I'll just pop to the loo, they say, well, focus group that to make sure they find that an acceptable thing to do. And if they come back and say, no, they prefer you not to go to the loo, uh, it's all right, I won't. And then someone else in his office will say, I'll brief the media that you haven't gone to the loo because when Jeremy Corbyn was here, he was age 72 and he went to the loo all the time. And that will show you're different from Jeremy Corbyn. Brilliant move, you know, focus. So it had been focus group to high heaven. And indeed, such is their obsession with focus groups, they brief the fact that focus groups approved of the policy, which is a mistake. Because the art of opposition is to appear always as if you're acting and leading in the national interest, not following some bloody focus group. So even if you are, you don't tell everyone you are. That's part of the art. But anyway, they've, they've broke, you know, they've thrown the door open. And, oh, yeah, the focus group's like this. Um, so it would be focus group to high heaven. 
But it's bold for him. It's, he's spending 28 billion quid on the price freeze. They're scared normally to spend 10p, you know, in case it hidden Tory uh, Labour tax rises and all the rest of it. So in that sense, it was bold and it was popular. It's one of the reasons why he's miles ahead in the polls. But even he didn't dare challenge the idea of these markets not working. But you have someone who did from Scotland, Gordon Brown, who at the beginning of our run together did this big intervention. Uh, He said, I don't know why everyone's on holiday. I think he was attacking Johnson, but unfortunately for him, Keir Starmer was also on holiday at the time, Um, for which I don't blame Starmer. Uh, People need a holiday. But he, it was very interesting, and a totemic moment, really. He said it might be necessary to bring these companies into public ownership. Now, Gordon Brown uh, was absolutely part of that new Labour project where this was taboo. Um, doing anything that challenged the Thatcher vision of markets and privatisation. And yet there he was calling for the public... I'll tell you how big it is. When, uh, during the 2008 financial crash, before then, uh, do you remember Northern Rock nearly collapsed? 2007, Gordon Brown had only been in power as Prime Minister for a few weeks. And he was under huge pressure to bring it into public ownership. And everyone was calling for it to give him a protective shield. The FT was calling for it. The Economist, not known as Marxist revolutionary publications, and many others. Uh, Vince Cable, who was then seen as a prophet, um, as the Lib Dem spokesman, was calling for public ownership. And Gordon Brown didn't dare because he thought it would be a sort of headline for the Tories to leap on. Brown takes us back to the 1970s, you know, blah, blah, blah. Sure enough, Cameron and Osborne. Uh, finally showing who they really were and while they were pretending to be these modernisers they weren't, came out and said exactly that when he did do it. He did take it back into public ownership belatedly and very reluctantly. And they came out, oh, Gordon Brown, take us back to the 1970s. Gordon Brown's very close friend, the then chief whip, Nick Brown, was in Cuba at the time when Gordon Brown did it. And Brown phoned him up, Nick Brown, and said, uh, Nick, just to let you know, we've, uh, we put, uh, we've done it. We've put Northern Rock... Uh, back into temporary public ownership. And Nick Brown joked to Gordon Brown, oh, that's good news, Gordon. I'll tell Fidel Castro he'll be thrilled. And um, there was a long pause. Only temporary, only temporary. So scared. Didn't want to be compared to Castro. Now, here he is, calling for the return of public ownership, to public ownership, albeit temporary, temporary. Um, but it's quite a symbolic move, shift. So there's been this weird, cinematic August in our time together. The build-up to this price freeze, uh, or sorry, the price increase, the sewage spilling onto the seas, and the trains not really running. Already the highest fares in Europe are not really running. And at the same time as these markets are clearly being exposed as utterly dysfunctional, we have these two candidates fighting it out over who is more Thatcherite than the other. But here is the dilemma for Liz Truss. September the 5th will both be the most exciting day in her life. When someone becomes Prime Minister, I can tell you, I've witnessed it quite closely. It is, uh, not, uh, sorry, I haven't been made Prime Minister myself. <laughs> it is utterly intoxicating. They think of those who have tried and failed. 
They think of those who they are following who have succeeded. They've done it. They consider themselves to be special for about a day before reality hits. And the reality for trusts will be more daunting than any prime minister since 1945. Because she emerges from the fantasy of this leadership contest, you know, where she's been targeting the Tory membership, 28 of them aged 200, um, not in total each. Um, And so she's just been saying in a very crude and unthoughtful way what she thinks they want to hear. Uh, I'm going to ignore Nicola Sturgeon. You know, how how all that works? She'll come up to Edinburgh and sort of meet in a room and sort of stand over there with her back to Sturgeon and then walk out, I suppose. I don't know what, I don't know how that's going to work. Um, but there she has been saying more substantially, £28 billion of tax cuts from day one, tax cuts which in no way at all address this increase that is heading our way. Um, and so she's going to have to address that too. And she doesn't know what she's going to do. The reason why she hasn't said what she's going to do is she doesn't know what she's going to do. She's been meeting with old quasi Kwarteng and Chevening. It's going to be a Chancellor trying to work it out. But at different times, she said, oh, I don't believe in handouts. Oh, huge applause at the Tory leadership hustings. But that's what she's going to do. And so here is going to be her issue. Does she go ahead with those tax cuts, which will be meaningless in the context of the uh, price rises that are coming? Or does she focus on neutering the price rises, or does she do both? I suspect she'll do both. She can't not do the tax cuts. You know, you can't go around for every day in August saying, you know, the tax cuts are the way forward, and then announce on September the 5th, I've changed my mind. Uh, So she'll have to do it. £28 billion spent. And then she'll have to do something about heating, which will be astronomically expensive. Another Labour's plan is 28 billion quid. That only takes them to December, when the next price cap will be announced, Another 28 billion. So this other irony is this. This great, small state tax cutter worshipping at the altar of Margaret Thatcher will begin her premiership spending around £100 billion. And that has hardly started. She says she has pledged to carry out the social care plan, which doesn't really exist at the moment, um, by uh, spending the money that was going to be going on the social care levy, actually on social care. But that means a huge cut in the NHS budget at a point where the NHS is creaking to the, with danger, flicking on the sort of NHS barometer. So she's going to have to spend more money on the NHS. The great small state shrinker will be spending and spending. And yet she's going to be surrounded by all these right-wing politicians. Apparently those gathering for these meetings at Chevening to plan the future are Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, who's right, 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 Ian Duncan Smith, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, that well-known socialist revolutionary figure. <laughs> and, and she's going to bring back Lord Frosty Frost, the great triumphant negotiator of that Brexit deal, How does he get away with it? He negotiated that Brexit deal. He now says it's a disaster. Well, he negotiated it. And in saying it's a disaster, he's become the great hero, along with trust in this mad world of fantasy politics, which are about to be reality. So it's going to be an epic autumn for Scotland, the whole of the UK, uh, as we find these fantasists meeting a very, very dark reality. And we are all going to be touched by what happens next. 
Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, blimey, look at the time. Order, order. That's my Lindsay Hoyle kind of impersonation. Lindsay Hoyle, when he wants to tell people off, doesn't say, do yoga, man. He said, hey, if you carry on like that, go out and make a cup of tea come back in. And Americans in the audience say, is that a punishment in Britain, going out and making a cup of tea? I thought they liked tea. Anyway, um, order, order. Who would like to... This is our last few minutes together this epic year. Yes, there and there. Okay. Um, in the run-up to 97 election, Labour were clearly setting the agenda. They were a government in waiting. Yeah. Um, will that happen <laughs> in the run-up to the 24? Yeah, for those who didn't hear, 90, in the build-up to 97... Uh, in a very in a, in a clever way, uh, Labour was setting the agenda. They framed John Major as a lurch to the right. He wasn't. He was to the left of Thatcher. But they framed him as to the right. They got him on sleaze for the negative stuff and then did something quite clever, which was to highlight relatively small incremental policies that symbolised a wider change. So, you know, they kind of had their five early pledges, reduce uh, classrooms in a primary school in North Allerton by one, and, you know, one, one additional police officer on the streets of Burnley. And, you know, but somehow with Blair, he could turn that into something exciting. A new Britain, a Britain reborn, young Britain, new Britain, you know, with his play, one more police officer on the streets. Um, but they did. They set the agenda. And absolutely, by now, at this point in the cycle... We knew they were going to win and win big. Now, that isn't at the place here because I think there has been a... uh, a, a Starmer has many qualities. He's got many advantages over previous leaders of the opposition who were Labour because quite often the media destroyed them as unsuited for power, unready for power. You can't really do that with someone who's been director of public prosecutions. And I think he exudes a genuine and sincere integrity. But he has been thrown, I think, for a time by Johnson's popularity a year ago and became very cautious and hesitant and unclear. And I think he will learn, perhaps he will learn, from the popularity of that relatively bold policy that you've got to think big in this era of seismic change. It's not 1997. It's post-pandemic huge gas prices, Brexit, the financial crash. You've got to think big and talk big and excite people with the bigness. Change. Trust was very clever to pose as the insurgent change maker. That's what you need to be in this crazy period we're living through. I think you had a... Will Ireland be united? And if so, Will Ireland be united? Well, good question, because this is another dilemma for Truss. Her team has briefed this week that she's going to go back on the Irish protocol that Lord Frosty Frost negotiated, um, which he now says is a disaster, but somehow is a triumph for him. And so if uh, that happens, uh, there will be many, many consequences, Uh, one of which will be a sense in Northern Ireland amongst a majority who um, actually are in favour of the protocol, 
North Belfast is one of the few places doing okay post-Brexit because they have access to the single market and uh, limited access to Britain. But everyone's got limited access to Britain these days. So it's a miracle those three people from outside the UK have got in. Well, I'm, <laughs> but I think you were already in because it's almost impossible now. And it's certainly impossible to get out. Um, and so there are going to be huge pressures in Northern Ireland. Now, if she does this, if she does this, uh, that will be another pressure. I don't know where it will lead, but it will be another pressure on the current situation uh, in Northern Ireland. But there will be other things that Truss has to bear in mind. The British economy, as we all know, is at the cliff's edge. Actually, that's putting it... We're kind of tottering over it. It is true that Sunak advised Johnson not to trigger Article 50 and have a war with the European Union, even though he's the hardline Brexiteer, lifelong, first words when he was born, was, I want to leave the European Union and become a multi-millionaire. He's achieved both, but they've not helped him at all in this leadership contest. Um, But he told him, we can't afford it. We cannot afford another war with Europe or what might happen in Northern Ireland and Ireland. Um, and Johnson, in the end, acceded. He, you know, he was at times during that Operation Save Big Dog mad period uh, earlier this year. He quite wanted a war with Europe because that's what his MPs love. You know, Rhys well, Boris Marvin's we're at war, we're at war. But they will retaliate, and this tottering economy will f- totter even more. And she won't be invited to Washington with Biden. You know, they all love it, Prime Ministers, on the red carpet... Uh, next to a president. None of that will happen if she revokes uh, Article 50. So she faces a dilemma there, but apparently she's going to do it, and that will fuel pressures towards a united Ireland. I, but when it will happen, I don't know. There are many complexities en route, as clearly there are in Scotland, judging by the vote earlier. Thank you. What about this side? One more? Uh, over there and then up there. Yeah. Hi there. Yes. So when uh, Starmer presumably faces Trump's, we're basically going to have two Remainers facing each other, both pretending that Brexit is great. (laughs) (laughs) How long can our country support this ludicrousness as as the disaster of Brexit becomes increasingly obvious and the hardcore people who still support the streets? Yeah, that's good. I hadn't thought of that. When Truss and Starmer face each other, it will be two Remainers both pretending that Brexit is great. And how long can this carry on for? Well, it's a good question, and I don't think it can carry on that much longer. There have been so far redhead herrings that have helped uh, people pretend that Brexit isn't the issue. The pandemic. So, you know, now, you know, the pandemic was blamed for chaos and shortages and labour shortages. You know, after lockdown, people don't want to work anymore, said Johnson in a statement from his third holiday. Um, so, so the pandemic's blamed for the labour shortages. Now, have you noticed, um, they all came out yesterday with the gas thing. It's Putin, just Putin, nothing to do with anything else. And inflation, Putin, even though it's obviously to do with these barriers they've put up everywhere. Then did you see the leadership debate between Sunak and Truss when they were asked, is Brexit anything to do with the queues at Dover? And they both, without hesitation, said no. But they didn't say anything else because they couldn't. Now, the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic might come back, but I think there will be a period when people realise, and polls suggest it's starting to happen. Now, voters never admit they get things wrong. They never do. So Starmer's office somewhat naively says, oh, we're in our focus groups and 
polling that they do all the time. They're not picking up voters' remorse. Well, voters never have... You never hear a voter say, I made a mistake. But voters can feel betrayed. And when they realise they're not getting £350 million a week to spend extra on the NHS, when they, you know, when they see all their places in their town game bust because of labour and the shortages of labour in the NHS and all the rest of it, in the end, connections are made. It takes a long time in this country because most people don't follow politics. We're quite unusual to be spending a sunny Saturday morning exploring politics, but it will. And then the leaders will respond... But Starmer's not going to lead that debate. Um, and, you know, it's, but he will respond. He will follow it, I think. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, one more, and then we've got to, I think, end. Uh, uh, yeah. Do you think politicians are fewer policy minded because they don't have Sorry, do are politicians genuinely weaker, or do, does the social media exaggerate and highlight the frailties that were already there? Well, what a brilliant question uh, to end this run on, really, because uh, obviously part of the uh, our time together over the last uh, fourteen shows have been exploring frailties in politicians, and I think it is a brilliant question, and I think the answer is uh, twofold. One. I think, um, objectively, there aren't as many big figures in politics as there were in the, even the 70s and 80s, um, you know, where there were these big titanic... The next bit's the very best. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. Uh, the, you know, hu- huge figures of, um, you know, on both sides. So in the Thatcher cabinet, you know, you had Douglas Hurd, Michael Heseltine... Uh, you know, these were big, complicated figures who dared to challenge her, Nigel Lawson, Geoffrey Howe. They were huge. And on the other side, it was very interesting. Even in 1992, Neil Kinnock's shadow cabinet, when he lost, Christ, I don't think the voters like me. Yeah. John Smith, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Robin Cook, Jack Straw, Harry... I mean, there weren't many women then, it has to be said. Many more now. But they, these were big figures in the 70s. God, they were huge figures. And there aren't, just objectively aren't. It would take another... Day, cancel Dolly Parton and we could explore why. But social media exaggerates it. A lot of these people aren't idiots. You know, I mean, Liz Truss, to quote her, the jury's out as to whether she's an idiot. Uh, that's what she said to about Macron. Uh, so, but social media unquestionably does, and it does something else. It panics the politicians into feeling they need to respond all the time. You know, so in the 70s, uh, Wilson when Prime Minister was increasingly kind of dark and paranoid and so on about the media as well as his colleagues. And so he would come out of a meeting or Prime Minister's questions, oh, that didn't go very well, I have another whiskey, and oh, my God. Uh, but it wasn't until the next day when the papers arrived that he would get the verdict of the columnists and so on. Now you get it instantly, and you think, oh, oh I better respond right away. And so everything is speeded up, and that in itself leads to flaws being... Uh, deepening, actually, in panic. And I know Liz Truss is a big follower of Twitter. Dangerous, dangerous. But they all are, frankly. You see it Prime Minister's questions. Uh, when um, Keir Starmer has finished asking his questions, you see him on his phone looking at Twitter. He's looking for the verdicts of the commentators watching from above. And um, so we're living in an era of speeded-up politics, and nothing illustrates it more than when we gathered here 
in August 2019 in a different world to when we're gathering here now today. And here's one prediction I think we can all safely make. We will be in another different world when we gather here in August 2022. So that's it. I think we've cracked everything. Uh, Paracetamol available downstairs and stronger medicines, but I think we've sold everything. We're ahead. Thank you so much for coming. You've all been brilliant. Thank you. So there we are. That was it. Uh, that was the last one of uh, 14. And then, uh, yeah, we got into a car and drove down to another festival, actually, Beyond Borders, um, uh, which is a fantastic uh, festival uh, at Traquaire. Beautiful, beautiful setting. And some really interesting sessions there. But now, of course, we all must get ready for the epic dramas of this autumn. And as I say, there might be uh, an extra one this week if I've got time, because there's been some sensational emails. Uh, But if not, next week we've got to gather to make sense of it all. We're building up to the beginning of the Liz Truss era. Johnson uh, might be able to cram in one more holiday while he's still Prime Minister. Who knows? Uh, But thank you so much for listening to this. As I say, tickets for... Uh, Liz Trust special at King's Place at the King's Place website and here Monday September the 19th and have a good week take a deep breath there's going to be a lot being played out in the weeks and months to come and we've got to keep together to make sense of it all thank you bye